you know, we had people like march up in front of the office and like physically threaten people <laughs> just because we wanted to give you more content for a bit of extra money. Yeah, the tweets were amazing. Take that shit back. It's a horrible company. Come on. Like, then there's like few people just saying, this is amazing. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> GM listener, and welcome to the 26th roundtable of the Metacast. My name is Nico, I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Florian Ziegler, Matej Lancharic, and David Amor. And um, as you know, I've said a name, Florian, Florian Ziegler, um, that I haven't said in a while. We have him, our, our lost, long lost cousin or brother. Welcome back, Florian. Thank you. How are you, man? Um, I'm good. I spent uh, about two and a half months in Mexico. Uh, working from there, uh, so not holidaying, um, which was great. Uh, sunshine, good weather, great people, mezcal, what, what more could you want? Exactly. Um, so you guys can't see this because this is a podcast, but uh, Florian looks awesome as well. He's like slightly tanned, he lost some weight, so uh, looking sharp, awesome. Is it, are you back permanently now, Florian? Defined permanently. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, like I, the whole, the whole, the whole point nomad. of me lodging myself in Berlin was to be in a, in a city that, that was good, but as a base, not as a, you know, I'm a nomad, always have been since since I left home. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. So, uh, yeah, welcome back. Glad to have you. And then there's Matei with uh, slightly smaller eyes than usual. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely lack of sleep. So what can we do? This is becoming part of my <laughs> life. Sleep. Yeah. Exactly. Oof. I, I wish I partied as hard as, as my daughter is having a party every day, every <laughs> night. <laughs> now, getting yeah. used to it. What can I do? All right. And then finally, we have David. Yeah, good. I'm on the road today. I've commandeered the office of a, a lawyer's in London because I'm going to an, um, to an NFT event later. But uh, mm. I think this works. This can be my temporary podcasting booth on the road, right? That's really cool. I mean, you've got your whole setup, like your mic, your headphones. I like it. It's awesome. All right. So, and today we are talking about first... MMOCGs. So you've heard of MMORPGs, but now we're doing MMOCGs, and that are massive multiplayer on-chain games. And so Dave and I, Dave and, David and I have been diving into that recently, um, super fascinated by it, and we'll do our best to explain it to Matei and Florian, who are going to be asking all the good questions. Next, we're talking about Ubisoft that um, made quite a bit of drama yesterday when they <laughs> announced their Quartz platform. So we're going to be talking about that. And then if we have some time, because I feel like we could spend a lot of time talking about that, we might talk about Moon Active that did a, a very big raise, 300 million at a very significant valuation. And then finally, we're doing some bold predictions about Ubisoft. I hope you guys are prepared. Oh, yeah. I am. And we were going to talk about Bobby Kotick, but you got nervous, right? I got nervous, <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that we will we'll keep for some, uh, for some other time. All right, let's uh, start diving in. So MMOCGs, Massive Multiplayer On-Chain Games. Um, David, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know leave this to your fantastic voice. Like maybe give us an intro in it. Where did you learn of this this concept? Go ahead. Oh, um, I was in an event um, in London a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Justin from Xerox Park, which is zero X P A R C rather than Xerox Park from California, was talking about a game that they're building called Dark Forest. And what was notable for me about it, and the reason why he was talking about it, was that the the whole game was. The game rules were uh, hosted on-chain. And um, the analogy that he gave that I found was useful, he talked about chess as a game. Chess, of course, that all the rules are known to everybody by now. And you can, you can fork those rules if you want. You can make super chess. But by and large, people have agreed these are the rules of chess. Now, once you've got an established set of rules, then you can build any kind of... Um, you can build any kind of client to represent that. So if you think about chess, then that could be, the interface could be chess.com. You could play chess across the internet with people, or it could be a board game, or it could be any number. Those pieces could be any kind of style and shape, or you can build ladders on it, your tournaments, you can have prizes. The point is, his point was that the game of chess has an established rule set whereupon anybody can then build their own interpretation, presentation layer, on top of that rule set. So what he's done with the game Dark Forest, as I understand it, is to take that uh, rule set and, and game logic and put it all on blockchain for everybody to see. And then people are free to 
uh, he calls this client agnostic. And by that he means you can have any kind of client that connects with the, the, block, the, game, the game's rules on the blockchain and present it any way they want. Or you can add tournaments on top of it, or you can find new sorts of trading things you can do it. But the point is, if the, if the rules are on the chain there, then he allows people to interface with the game logic in any way they choose. And what he's found with his game is that every week he finds people building new things on top of it, and they've created things that he wasn't expected to see. And for me, that was a new idea. Obviously, we're used to making games with a client server that might interface with the server via an API, but it being a very closed system. And I think by putting it on chain, it opens up some new ways of development. How did I do, Nico? I really liked that. That was really good. Um, and, and one thing I'd like to add, so for me, for a while, I didn't really understand the difference between open source and on-chain, like what the real difference was. Um, and so um, on-chain is both open source, where all of the code is, you know, you can, you can find it. It's, it's on GitHub or somewhere else. And additionally, it's um, open state, which means that um, if there's an on-chain game, my progression is actually on the chain, which means that, you know, if I progress level-wise in some sort of, you know, RPG on the blockchain, and, and, on, uh, and in this case, like a massive multiplayer on-chain RPG, um, there's going to be a lot of letters. It's like a M-M-O-C-R-P-G. Oh. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, man, the future is bright <laughs> for these things. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but if, if I'm playing an RPG and I have, like, a progression, like, someone else could, can, can just allow me or, or build a game wherein I can use my progression in, inside their game. Um, and same thing with, with NFTs and assets, for example, you know, if you earn on, an on-chain, like, assets, that is also all every everything is open so theoretically someone else can start you know building on top of that so that that potentially you know brings us to this big promise of blockchain for you know the interoperability um, aspect of it i i would ask florian as a game designer whether or not you understand what nico and i are talking about <laughs> so um i i thought the the way i understood you david was that um it's basically very similar yes. to just opening up your source code to the wild right where anyone can just take and build upon it what Nico was then was saying was actually uh, more like an it's it's actually not the base rules that you're putting up there that you can build upon. It's actually player states, which is kind of fundamentally different. Uh, is is it is it both? Is it one or the other? Yeah, I I would say to expand on what you described, what you understood from what I said, it's it's um it's like an open version of client a server code even though you can query it from uh, the client it still only has a very thin amount of inputs that you can give it and you can't really see the state it, but it's it might have been built from open source but it's a closed piece of software and you can't really tell what's going on when you put your api queries uh, instead, this is completely open and everybody can see exactly what it's doing on chain. It's computed by m millions of people on the blockchain rather than any one central uh, server. And that actually, sorry to interrupt you, but that final point actually means also that as a, if you're as a game studio building on-chain games, it means that you don't need to have a backend. You don't need to have servers. You don't need to have a database because that's the blockchain is doing all that for you. Okay, but again, sort of... Um I think there are two different cases here, right? One is the classical kind of like we're putting player data on the chain, which is what you mentioned, Nico. And what David mentioned is like we're putting the game rules and their computation on chain. It's both, right? Yes, it's, it can be both. And I think it allows people to create any kind of client. So somebody can come along and say, I can see those game rules. I'm going to create a mobile version of that game that connects with the game rules on the blockchain and player states on the blockchain. And I am going to interpret it this way and allow people to play it with this interface. But it could even be played from Etherscan because it's just completely queried. It's just a, running a piece of code on the blockchain. Guys, well, me as a player, okay, so why should I care? <laughs> <laughs> good, that's a great question, Matei. Nico's that's a good question. So the, the current iteration of on-chain games are literally for the biggest nerds only like okay. you need to like you need to be passionate about the fact that this this is all happening on chain in order to enjoy it right because the the current games there are maybe a handful um mm. there, there, there's like people building their own graphical user interface because that's the way they like to you know they can they can you can have like you can have a dark uh, dark souls vibe but you could also have a um unicorns and rainbow rainbows vibe it's all up to you you know it's just you know the the whole state of the game is just on chain and, and whatever graphical thing you want to build on top of it in your browser is uh, completely up to you. 
so what I think would be super interesting there for, as, a, as a designer, I guess, is that um, I'm, I'm going to deliberately avoid any of these big words that are floating around right now. But like you could have, could have multiple universes created on the same rule set. Whereas a, as a player, if I like the base rule set of the game, I can find myself very easily in new games that are familiar enough to me that are instantly accessible, but they're slightly different expressions uh, of that, that someone else has conjured up. So if it was chess, as David mentioned, I can definitely see a world where, as a gamer, there is something for me where I really love chess, um, but I don't want to play the same chess every time, and I get to basically go into this amusement park where every single ride is based on chess, but they're substantially different enough that I can stay within the same player system, um, which I think if, if I really love with the set of rules, uh, which some people are, then uh, I think that could be quite cool. I think it also is a game production win. It's a different way of game production. So to answer Matei's point, as a player, maybe you don't see anything different, just games show up and you go, it's a different game to play. But from a production yeah. point of view, you've got a number of teams working on the same rule set and are free to sort of build whatever expression of that rule set they want. So I'm not sure... Chess is a great example, but if you want to do a Star Wars chess and you want to do a chess online, whichever, whichever way you want to interact with that game can be, uh, you can build whatever client you want for it. Hmm. And if as a player, sorry to, to interrupt you, uh, Florian, but if as a player, for example, you, you know, you want one thing tweaked, let's say that there's, you know, you're playing a game with multiple champion, maybe it's something League of Legends, uh, like a MOBA, and you think that one champion is overpowered, you can literally make a fork make sure and that everyone retains on my own and well yeah and the yeah. thing is if you can find enough enough players that want to play that with you then that might might mm. become the new big game right and so that's um i think where you mm. get a lot of in very interesting dynamics um yeah so in pen and paper role playing uh this has kind of been a, a thing long uh, for a long while where you had all these different systems and you would need to buy into like dungeons and dragons or world of darkness or any any of the the big players and people started sort of inventing these like universally applicable role-playing systems, which kind of work like that, like uh, GURPS or like this, and there's a, there's a lot of them by now. Um, they're kind of aimed to have a, a universally applicable basic rule set from which you can sort of spin your individually modified adventures. And I, uh, I think I can definitely see something like that for, say, example, you know, I think actually D&D &D is probably a good example where like, you know, the D20 system that it has... Um, where you roll 20-sided dice for most of your things, you could have that as a baseline and from there people can spin off off that uh, but have all the calculations done in this kind of like basic rule set. I think that could actually actually be quite cool. That's a good analogy. I hadn't thought of that. What do you think is the result of, going, using your D&D &D example, is that good or is that bad, all these sort of forks of a basic rule set? What's What's been the result? Well, <laughs> I mean... I mean, <laughs> with role-playing games, it's a bit tricky, right? Because it kind of depends on what kind of game you want to play, right? Because some people like very rule systems where you have to, like, you know, get your head really deep into a character system and min-max it and exploit it. And other people don't like that. They want to have storytelling. So uh, I, I think it would probably work as a base system, um, but the modifications would probably look quite heavily diverse and probably be only be played by 10 people, as Matei already said. There's going to be people who, like... Particularly if it's nerdy, people will just kind of start creating their like their micro niches out of that system, where probably just ten people are going to sit. Um, again, the role playing analogy: if you ever been to like a role playing sort of um, con or something, uh, you always have the big tables with the big games everyone knows, like Dungeons and Dragons. And then as you go further into the room, like the tables get smaller and smaller and smaller, and like the topics get more obscure. Like you're a tune, or like I don't know. This is a non-binary space adventure where you are—I uh, don't know—killing people with maths or something. Uh, so I, I suspect you could probably get a similar setup um, around around that kind of games. I, you see, I think I think that's interesting because in that scenario, Dungeons and Dragons being ends up being bigger than Dungeons and Dragons because it isn't just Dungeons and Dragons. So you know, if you imagine that pure—I've never been to one—but if you imagine. A conference, a quarter of the show floor is dedicated to classic Dungeons and Dragons, and the rest is uh, forks of that. Then that would be an example of where, by opening it up and allowing people to modify or keep the same base set of rules, but then change a few things, then it makes it a bigger thing than it would be otherwise. Yeah. So interesting. Obviously, it then gets when you have a, a proprietary system, right? Where like you could put it technically on chain, but you have to pay for forking off it, um, which is probably the, the road you'd go with Dungeons & Dragons and stuff. 
Well, I think there's probably, we didn't, we didn't talk about the role of tokens here, but if you own a token that, that sort of sits inside the middle of the game, then there's revenue opportunities there, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still haven't completely figured out how, you know, you would monetize something like this, because Florin, I believe that once something is on the blockchain, there is no way to stop people from forking it, as far as I understand. Well, technically, right? But legally... <laughs> That would technically be possible. But the thing is, like, the thing, yeah, I agree. But the thing is, like, if you fork it, you initiate, I mean, like, you, there's like an address who makes that game, right? Who, who are you going to sue if your game gets forked? Mm. No, but I'm pretty sure you, there'll be a, like, ways to shut it down, right? I mean, like, it's sooner or later, this is going to happen in some I actually form. don't think there's... Right? Because no one keeps you from drawing Mickey Mouse everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, the, the mouse will still come after you. No one no one can come after you <laughs> if you put Mickey Mouse on, on the blockchain. That That's the thing. Like this, yeah, I don't, I don't think um, you can do much from a regulatory point of view, in my opinion. It's, it, I don't think you oh, can... I, w I wouldn't be that confident. I, I'm speaking from a lawyer's office. I can see him from <laughs> here. Oh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. I think part of the blockchain stuff is still a very wild west, right? Yeah. But like that's not going to be forever. So, Yeah, that's true. I think it has. A, I think it's an idea with lots of potential, and that's you, you, Nico. You and I have spoken about this a lot. But one of the reasons I'm interested in Web three blockchain games is every couple of weeks a, a new idea along these lines comes along, and uh, quite yeah. exactly how that will manifest itself over the coming weeks, months, years is not clear. But it's fun to watch, fun to be a part of, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, so there'll be another one in two weeks, and we'll end up talking about mm -hmm. that too. And one of the thing, things, so during this presentation, Justin, um, I forgot his last name, um, he said that in his game, uh, Dark Forest, he encourages bot building. So there's, um, and, he, and so he told us that like someone actually coded a bot that would um, explore the, like the whole area of the game and you could actually pay it to tell you where it's like some kind of space exploration game. And so basically you could pay it and it would go and look for, um, for like planets with uh, like, I don't know, good resources or something. And so someone coded that bot that then other people would pay. And then the one that coded that would keep like a bit of the, of the stuff that he coded, like of, of the payment that the others made, um, some, some crazy stuff like that. Um, so there's like this, so much of this, you know, this creativity, creativity going on. Um, I find it all very exciting. Well, and, and he didn't know that was going to happen. I think that by opening it up, not just in terms of source code, but in terms of, you can operate with it on chain and and use it, then it, it allows people to build things that the original creators had no expectations. Mm -hmm. And also something interesting is you cannot stop a game. So basically they just right. decide together, so they have a team that makes this, and they decide, okay, we're going to play from you know Monday to Friday on these dates. But if people want to play afterwards, there's nothing to stop them, right? And you can go back in time, look at the blockchain, and just continue playing a, a, like one of these games that were instantiated. Um, so there's like all these fascinating nice. implications. Well, I like the idea of uh, player progression, being able to, you know, get your progression and take it to a different game. That's, uh, that's a nice one. Let's see. I see like Florian. Florian is like looking into, you know, the deep. Mm. Is, is, there's it's like coming. a thousand calculations going on in his mind, or is that your, your brain just yeah. suffering from <laughs> sleep deprivation? Or <laughs> Actually, what I was thinking about is like one, one thing that I always wanted to do when, when the blockchain conversation came up, player state saving, is because um, I, you know, I come from very much from a strategy and an RPG background. For you to actually have your heroes and you can transport them into any other game system. Um, that, that's what I would like. like. Actually, you know, because people get very attached to their characters rather than having to make a new thing every time or to like lose them, all that kind of stuff to actually be able to interoperably take them from one place to another, from one game to another, their looks or their stats or, um, and they're like, you have a conversion program. So you can actually keep your same kind of uh, alter ego across wherever you go. Um, yeah, I think that's coming as well. And at first, in fact, probably I spoke about it on the, on the Metacast a while ago. I, I couldn't see that companies allowing that to happen. What I realize now is that if you're building a game, then I think the smartest thing you can do is say, hey, your characters, your weapons, your t-shirts, they're all welcome in this game. Because if, if I sell you a paintball gun, then the idea you can only use it in one paintball place in, in real life is crazy. You'd never have that. Of course you can use your stuff here. Otherwise, they'd never move from one place to another. They just keep going the same place. And, uh, but we got used to our items being trapped in the game. I think they will be interoperable 
in others because it's a great way of building an audience by saying, sure, your, your things are good over here. Come on over. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm going to like propose something super nerdy. And again, this, like I've never built a game, so uh, this could be completely ridiculous, but is there a world where, you know, on chain standards get gets, um, you know, devised or decided on commun- like with the community about, let's say, you know, character like, um, and progression with, with skills and, and certain types of traits, and then you have consensus around like a contract around weapons. Um, and then you basically, people can build their own, you know, dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons adventures. And they all agree on, you know, the character traits that were decided initially. And so that way you could, you know, get your level 15, you know, blood mage or whatever. And then, you know, you, you can level up during one dungeon and then it's level 16. And then you can just start another adventure that another company made perhaps. Um, and and because everyone agrees on these initial rule sets, um, you know, that just all works. I don't think, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any been any agreed standards in video games. I guess there must have been yeah. some. I mean, obviously there are loads on the internet that have been created by, you know, RFCs and um, non-profits, I suppose. But um, I can't think of examples where a game company has said, let's agree what a character class should look like and have these attributes and this describes how long their legs are, whatever. I can't think that's ever happened. Can you guys think of that ever? In the non-digital space, for sure. Yeah. For example. Oh, that's what I mean. When when the, the, the community-based, the community-made role-playing systems came up, where they're like, we we've agreed on that, like this is the running speed of a character who's X amount high. So it doesn't matter whether you take him into a space game or whether you play a multi-legged uh, oh, anthropod. Uh, this is just this the the base set of rules that we sort of agreed on, and because of a community-made or still our community-made, um, that that's kind of where where this works i haven't seen it in a digital space mostly because making video games is so expensive that i think a lot of people don't really i mean as a designer as well i don't really want like very often player communities make very terrible design decisions (laughs) so um so very often you don't necessarily want that to happen i guess yeah all right. Now, finally, just to, to round up this discussion, I think it's an interest con- interesting concept um, and I'd like to have, because David has been thinking about this a lot and, you know, Florian and Matei, I'd love to have your thoughts as well, but I, I'm not going to hold you <laughs> to an answer. But yeah, David, what like potential do you see in this concept? Like what size of the whole gaming world do you see this taking? <laughs> That's a big question. Give me a range. This wasn't in the show notes. Nobody said you were going to say this. Uh, <laughs> I think gotcha. it's, a, it's sort of untested at the moment. So I can, as I, I'm not a CTO type, so I have an understanding of technology, but uh, I think it's an awesome idea, the, the idea that we can, you know, run a set of rules on a, on, a, on a blockchain and then just interface with it with our individual games. I think that's really commercially and creatively, I can think of some really good use cases for it. I'm waiting for our CTO to say, yes, it all makes sense and we can actually do it. Because the blockchain today doesn't run very quickly, so there's got to, you've got to make some allowances for that. You probably can't have a Twitch game that, that is server-side, so there, there are some problems with that. Um, I could certainly see it being part of the games industry, uh, but... Um, are you looking for a figure as to well, how many players or how much money? That's 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 a tough one. Yeah. Tell me how, how many players percentage wise, because the money is too hard. Like I don't even understand yet how that will make money. But so I'm going to answer a different question. That I think if you put it to people who make video games, that it's a really interesting idea, and people will be keen to try that out. And that, I know it's a bit of a non-answer, but you know it's it's got legs as an idea. I, I wouldn't, uh, and I know that people, when you when it becomes more widely understood as an idea, lots of people are going to be trying it. I think, but as to what that turns out, let's see. Let's see if it it can run. Yeah, exactly. What, what that turns out in terms of MAU or dollars, no idea. Way too early. I'm, I'm disappointed with that answer, no Dave. But <laughs> let's see, uh, Matei, what do you think? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I have very short answer. No idea, Miko. Seriously. Really, this can be a never-ending possibility. Yeah, I agree. Florian? Um, so I can see this re- go really, really well in a non-commercial way. I see this kind of like a bit like Dwarf Fortress kind of style, where, um, you know, dedicated free labor <laughs> for the love of the project will mm. probably get this to a stage where it's going to be really, really, really popular with this small subset of people. Mm. 
Um, and by small subset, I mean like, you know, still hundreds of thousands probably. Um, but I, I can't really see it having big commercial benefits. So, uh, but I can see exactly the type of person who would love this kind of on-chain project and extrapolating on it, sort of like a, a free, free-for-all Roblox kind of thing. Um, uh, so I can definitely see it. Is that person Nico? <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like already surfing to the website. He's like, how, how can I play this? Yeah. yeah. I, I think twenty years ago, when I was in school or when I was in uni, I probably would have. Yeah, for sure. Jumped on. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. All right, I'll I'll be even more positive. I think um, I think companies are going to figure out the monetization aspect of this, um, and I think it's going to be big. So um, I think I agree. It's going to start with like a subset of of like very dedicated nerds and i think like there's going to be a viral loop where more people join cooler games get created more people join cooler games get created etc all right but uh yeah that's me my my optimist like uh, my constant uh positivism all right let's move on to our second topic ubisoft launches nfts for ghost recon um that was yesterday so we're recording this on wednesday so it's been a few days if you listen to this on friday so ubisoft launches quartz it's going to be coming in beta very soon. Players can acquire digits, and these are the first Ubisoft NFTs. By the way, I hate the name digits. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, they sell it as their limited edition. They have serial numbers, so they're non-fungible, and it keeps track of ownerships on blockchain. Um, and so basically, they're here they're just selling what Ubisoft perceives as the most important characteristics of NFTs to the players, right? That's that's basically what, what they do here. Um, and so the first drops, which are coming out in the next seven days, are a M4A1, so a weapon, a wolf-enhanced helmet, and a wolf-enhanced pants. So these NFTs are dropping. Um, other points, so you need to reach level five within the game to claim. So I was already you know, signing up. I had my wallet ready. I was going to claim my NFTs, and then it's like, ah, yeah, you need um, to have uh, level five. In what game was it? Let me double check. You guys know by heart? Ghost Recon. Ghost Recon. Ghost Recon. Yeah. 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 So you need to be level five there. Um, so peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So if I mint my NFT and I will sell it to David, um, I won't be doing that on a Ubisoft platform. So it's going to happen on the blockchain. It's going to be on the, on authorized marketplaces, variable.com or object.com. And so I don't know what the authorized mean means because in, the in theory, I should be able to sell it or send it to David without any marketplace. Um, so not sure mm. what that means. There's no transaction fees for Ubisoft. If a player is banned, they can still sell NFTs, but not buy NFTs, which is something I also don't really understand because the blockchain is open, <laughs> Ubisoft. Guys, come on. Anyway, um, so that's that's a bit of the story. What were your first thoughts? Um, I'll let Matej go first. Uh, well, the video is really cool looking and I wanted to explore more, but you know, guess what? It's not, it's not available in my region. So I, uh, <laughs> I can't see anything. Really? Like, okay. Amazing. Thank you very much Ubisoft for uh, thinking about Slovakia. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Bummer. All right. Yeah. I actually had the same thing when I was like, uh, it said it would be available in Germany, but it isn't like, uh, I just get messages that you can't do this in this country. Um, really? but, uh, yeah, I I think the interesting thing is rather than us talking about first impressions, I think it's probably worth talking about the internet's first impression about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, what did you see, or what did your friends say, uh, Florian? I know it's just like uh, you know, I, I don't need to look to my friends. I just look at the data. In this case, the amount of negative reviews and dislikes that Ubisoft has gained for it. <laughs> uh, but because yeah. I think the interesting thing is, particularly when you're like a very you know traditional games company. Uh, that, that makes AAA games, the opinion of your users is rather important. Um, so while, you know, we might have our fancy ideas of what like Ubisoft could do with this and it's rather exciting intellectually, um, you know, uh, talking about the users is probably the bigger deal in this case. So, yeah. What did you guys see about the users? Well, just, you know, I, I, I am impressed that Ubisoft has done this and they've done it in a pretty authentic way, it is a, a real chain and it's not, you know, it's sort of NFT light, but it is uh, a good effort. Mm -hmm. That sounds patronizing, doesn't it? But but it is, you know, to, to, <laughs> Florian's, <laughs> to Florian's point, it's like it really doesn't, hasn't landed well with, the, with the, the audience that plays that game, which is a shame because yeah. I think that that ought to be reason to be 
cheerful, the idea that you can uh, sell on items that you've bought in-game. Surely that's a, a good thing for players, but hasn't been received that way. I think the core gamers are, or traditional gamers, whatever we're calling them, are, are very suspicious of anything NFT, right? So even if it yeah. has advantages, I think the first reaction is, hang on a minute, this is free-to-play, but worse. We didn't like free-to-play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The tweets were amazing. Take that shit back. It's a horrible company. Come on, like, come on, well, why? <laughs> And then there's like few people just saying, this is amazing, I love it. <laughs> but is that, does that mean, if to extrapolate, does, is that what's going to happen? I mean, is that the same problem that Activision are going to find with Call of Duty, that just no traditional gamer is happy with this element being introduced to their game? I guess because they don't understand yet how to use it. I think it's because tr traditionally gamers are, as you said, very suspicious of games companies full stop. Like, even when, like, you know, before I even went into mobile, when it was still 99 cents, I was on, on core games, like, you'd get death threats for <laughs> offering DLCs, yeah. you know? Um, and, like, we, like, you know, we had people, like, marching up in front of the office and, like, physically threaten people <laughs> just because we wanted to give you more content for a bit of extra money. So, I mean, the same people are just going to hate on everything that you put out that vaguely smells like money, no matter how good it is. Um, and I think what, what Ubisoft has done wrong a bit here, I think they could have been better on the messaging. Because in the end, the NFT play, I think the way they kind of message it now is sort of a bit like, oh, this is exclusives, sort of. And like the, the trajectory they kind of put up is like, oh, this is the future. And we're kind of targeting implicitly the affluent range of our players. Um, or that's at least the vibe I've been getting. Um, and I, I think that's maybe they could... But it's free. Well... It's free to mint. Now. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like they, they, used, they used words that, you know, that, that very much sounded like premium and VIP. Okay, yeah. um, that in, as a player who has no interest in, in buying these, I'm like, and I'm suspicious, I would probably kind of go like, mm, you're just trying to sell me premium items because, you know, you, you want to put more free to play in my paid games, which is kind of, and there's precedence for that. So I guess that's why people are upset. And then there's a few things about the implementation that you alluded to, Nico, that have me scratching my head, like the idea that you can stop somebody trading it. If your account is banned, then you can't trade those items anymore. I can't even think how, if it's really on a public chain, I don't know how you could do that. That's not what blockchain is. So there's a few things that I just can't quite figure out mm -hmm. uh, about it. And maybe that was just, again, in something to do with the messaging, but... There's some things that aren't quite right there. That's what you were alluding to. Yeah, yeah I understand. Yeah. So if you're like banned, you cannot buy new new NFTs. You can sell, but not buy. No, you it's can't sell. Weird. That's If you're banned, you can't sell. And that that doesn't make any sense. And that I guess that implies a wider sort of misunderstanding yeah. of what this is. But I would say, you know, that they're the, the first AAA. And I, I love Ubisoft. They'll always go out there and try something different and... I remember this, what, 10, 20 years ago, whatever it was, when they came out with Just Dance and everyone thought they were crazy for a dance game where you just held a Wii controller. And then it turned out it was massive and it was a huge piece of business for them. But it's only because they put themselves out there and do something a bit weird or a bit, you know, untested. So, you know, I, I admire them as a company for that. Yeah, look, this 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 seems like a... Yeah, sorry. This seems like a blockchain formal, really. When EA and Zynga announced they're moving into this direction. So, you know, oh, we are Ubisoft. We need to do it uh, as well. Let's uh, let's try to figure something out. But if it's FOMO and, and like trying to follow, like why would you be the first one to make a move like this? It's true. It's so risky, no? Yeah. Well, my, my theory is a bit, and this might be slightly cynical, but I mean, like Ubisoft's kind of been on a, compared to the, all the other big games makers, um, they've kind of been a bit on a downward trend. Uh, overall, in, in relation, and uh, I, I think this seemed to me this seemed a bit of a, like a, a way to kind of go like ooh ooh ooh. Val Valve said no, EA hasn't done it yet. It's, you know, now is the time to fire to get some headlines out there, um, and I hope hopefully we get all the the blockchain mm. gamers and all the affluent crypto nerds to play our games. Uh, that's kind of how it felt to me because they have not really pushed anything there. I was like, just disagreed slightly, David. We're like, yes, Ubisoft has tried cool stuff in the past in terms of games, but this just feels like, hey, here's cosmetics that you can resell. I'm like, it's not like they've done anything cool with blockchain. I'd give them more than that. I would say that 
this isn't any kind of fast follow, is it? They're really in there first. And I'd, I'd imagine this is not a small piece of work integrating this, even though it's not a large part of the game, but actually getting it, you know, legally, technically, um, actually figuring out how it fits in the game. It's not a small piece of work. So they're definitely committed to it. I think, I don't think they're doing it in a cynical way. I think they're thinking that NFTs or blockchain games are going to be a part of what they do in the future and they need to start somewhere. I think that's probably their motivation. I don't even think it's a Wall Street play. I think it's it's just we as a company think that this could be a useful piece of technology that will be important in time to come. Let's get out there and understand it. Yeah, they said this is the first stepping stone into the, the metaverse in the in the future, obviously. <laughs> there you go. There we go. Yeah. And when um so I, I, I read the games industry article on this and there there was a quote so a ubisoft representative told gamesindustry.biz its nfts will always be cosmetic items that have no impact on gameplay that's yeah. a big <laughs> statement uh <laughs> they might regret that one day i don't know yeah i mean it's me quoting like an article that quotes a you know representative so take it with a grain of salt but um I'm, yeah I, I agree i think that's that's very like unwise to to say as a with like from within ubisoft yeah but that might be just to, you know, to appease, you know, the, the raging crowds as, by the way, this I also found interesting. So like there was a, quite a lot of focus on the, you know, energy efficientness of these NFT drops yeah. because, you know, that's what, that's half of what, you know, all of the people are always saying like, oh yeah, why don't we, you know, I don't know what they say, but then, and, and burn down the world at the same time, you know, or join a Ponzi scheme and burn down the, the forest. Um, <laughs> so that, that's basically the the in most of these tweets what i saw can you imagine how how many meetings there must have been at ubisoft to figure this stuff out like the uh, ecological yeah. issues what yeah. their players are going to think about how it's going to work i mean hours and hours and hours yeah and um and they put it out and then reddit goes nuts <laughs> yeah. I hate but um so, so so maybe for someone if someone's interested i looked the blockchain that they're using is called tesos mm. and so tesos is is very similar um for the moment as um Ethereum, but they have a different way of adding new features to the blockchain. So it's like the way they add new features to the blockchain is kind of built in. Um, also, they're fully proof of stake and not proof of work. Ethereum for the moment is still proof of work. It's going towards proof of stake, uh, but there's still quite a large energy consumption from the Ethereum blockchain. But so Tezos, so they said um, on the page that one transaction on the Tezos blockchain consumes as much as streaming a video for 30 seconds. Mm. Um, which is, I guess, I mean, everyone streams yeah. videos, right? So if you do that, then exactly. yeah, it's whatever, right? Uh, but anyway, so Tezos is is uh, pretty similar to uh, Ethereum and it's just a different way of moving forward. Um, there's not a lot of games happening there and I really wonder like how, how they settled on that one. Um, it's, it's, it's not a decentralized chain, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Oh, it is, okay. Yeah, it is. So, um, yeah, I, I like that, the fact that they did that. Yeah, I saw a report uh, about Bitcoin transaction consumption of, of electricity. Uh, it said, I think, $100 uh, of in electricity uh, is uh, every single Bitcoin transaction, even buying uh, whatever, latte or whatever. And mm -hmm. the report states also that the Bitcoin transaction consumes over 1,000 kilowatt hours of electricity, whatever that is. And then just, yeah. this is a volume of energy that could power the typical American home for six weeks. <laughs> Look, okay, if if we want, we can we can have a discussion about Bitcoin and in energy because one, like, yeah, like if we do transactions, it doesn't actually, there's no uh, electricity cost per transaction for Bitcoin. It doesn't really work that way. So if we do tens of transactions now, it yeah. doesn't increase the energy that Bitcoin uses. Um, but mm. uh, we, we, we'll keep that to <laughs> another triggered. time. You've triggered, Nico, be careful. <laughs> of course. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I, yeah, I could see, I could see, I could see his face, of course, like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's definitely an interesting conversation in terms of games, right? Because then, you know, if, if, you actually, if you actually have to take that into account in the future, then putting too many transactions on the chain or too much of your game on chain might actually be detrimental. Right? Um, yeah, so my feedback on this is um, I, don't, I think that any game, like there's no game that will work on Bitcoin mainnet or Ethereum mainnet, like layer one. So actually, like tomorrow I'm going to record a, um, like a, a Crypto Corner episode on scaling solutions for blockchain specifically like okay what's the layer one what's the layer two what's the side chain Ooh. we're going to talk about all that we're going to talk about the differences transaction speeds energy usage etc 
Um, so we don't have to do that here. But in general, I don't, for me, I live, I think about blockchain as, you know, going to be, as as you said, like almost like the transactions are going to be almost instant and are going to cost uh, very, very low amounts of energy. I agree. I agree. So what do you guys think that these NFTs, so we I just said, so we have a weapon, we have a helmet and we have pants. You're going to be able to use them in Ghost Recon, so one game. Do you think you'll be able to use them in different games, maybe following Ghost Recon games? How do you think uh, Ubisoft thinks around that? Maybe Rainbow Six Siege or any other action game, most probably. I think that if they're treating this as an experiment, then one thing that if I was running Ubisoft, then I'd want to test that. Like what happens if we allow players to take a limited number of items from one game to another? What happens? So I don't know if there's a massive strategy behind it or whether or not it's just an experiment, but if it was an experiment, then I'd certainly allow that to happen. You want to find out, right? I swear they said something like this, that they're actually planning to make the move between games, but I don't have the article in front of me. But I vaguely recall that they were th they said they were thinking about it. Because I, th I think it would be a great way to shift people around, right? So like, say you're playing I don't know, Rainbow Six, you got some cool NFTs, and then you go like, okay, you know, we're a bit in a content lull on this game. Why don't we do some work to make it integratable in whatever, the division or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can shift some players over there Use their gear there, shake up the meta game there, uh, because you give them some stats uh, that are interesting. Uh, and then you know when the original game has like new DLC or new content or new NFTs, you can like try to get those players back again, which is actually potentially quite great because um, you you can have like new ways to play the game without actually releasing new content. Mm -hmm. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. Time will tell. Yeah, time will tell. And I I generally think I I think. The way this looks to me is is as an experiment, as you said, David. Um, and I actually I really applaud them. I uh, I think uh, it's it's a great experiment. And honestly, like the crowd reaction. The thing is, like some people are so verbal. There's like a verbal minority who's like hating on everything, right? And it's very possible <laughs> that they just they're the ones clicking the dislike button on, on the on the thing and just, yeah. just flaming everything. And then buy the NFT. Yeah, then, yeah. I, I, that's my point. So basically, <laughs> before judging whether this was successful, it's like the guys on Steam who are like, "I hate you, game. One star. I will never play it again. It's the worst thing ever." Clocking another hundred right, hours. Yeah, in exactly. the day. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So for me, honestly, like this will be successful based on, on extra actual metrics instead of like um yeah opinion from twitter or what was it so uh, this tweet from kotaku uh, I'm, I'm quoting ubisoft first major pub to befoul own game with nfts <laughs> <laughs> my god <laughs> my god honestly like i don't i think it's gonna hell will freeze over before kotaku write, write a positive <laughs> uh, blockchain <laughs> game story I so you know what uh, me and my friends would say about kotaku we would say ngmi not gonna make it yeah, there you go. True. Like not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, finally, we, we have some time left. We can talk a bit about Moon Active. So Moon Active raises $300 million. Um, the investment puts the CoinMaster developer valuation at $5 billion. And the CEO sees potential for endless growth, as I guess all CEOs see. Um, they did a round last year, which was at a $1.25 billion valuation. So a nice Forex uh, markup there. And the company is expected to hit 1.5 billion in revenue this year. There are currently 1,300 people, mainly in uh, Tel Aviv, their headquarters, um, and they've recruited 400 extra people this year. And according to a recent report from Sensor Tower, between August 2020 and September 2021, so the 12 months before September, CoinMaster generated the highest revenue of a casino mobile game in the US, generating uh, 650 million. So, um, Matej, I see you nodding. What do you think of this? Yeah, well, Moon Active is going to the moon. There you go. <laughs> oh. I'm a father now, so I can get away with these dead jokes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, look, the the Coin Master game is absolutely amazing. They are in the, well, they're getting what well, making seventy five million dollars each month, and uh, there is no well, no signs of stopping actually. Since last year, when they um, started doing these marketing activities with celebrities, it's just. Uh, an amazing growth. So yeah, I'm not seeing why they should stop now, really. Have we got a sense of where that is? It all coming from CoinMaster? Is it coming from other games? Yeah, is it all only CoinMaster? I checked that also uh, on other tool, not Sensor Tower, but the other one, and it says uh, yeah, 75 million, and they 
had the best month um, in January this year, which was 86 million, which is impressive, really. Sorry, I, I don't understand what you're saying. You're saying it all comes from CoinMaster all coin, or no? Yeah, all, all CoinMaster, yeah. nothing else. What makes this game so great? Well, I guess uh, it's a really good ca a social casino with really high LTVs, right? So, well, why has it got high? I guess the point is, why has it got high LTVs? I mean, what is it that people love about that game? Because they do and they stick there, and they're not moving, and it's just making a ton of money. It's true. Well, you know, it's a combination of of the slots and uh, you know trying to 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 get revenge and uh, play against your friends as well. I guess that's that's all that's what always is in the in the creatives as well, and uh, that's what uh, J Lo was uh, advertising in the marketing uh, video. There you go. <laughs> so that's it. It's just J Lo. Yeah, I saw that. Did it. Just J Lo. Just J Lo. <laughs> so the, I think the fantastic thing about these guys, uh, and I, I hold them in very high mm. regard, is um, the the cool thing is it's not a casino game, right? You know, we put it in the casino bracket, but the yeah. the whole key point is that it's not a casino game. Like it's it's gotten rid of all every single trope that is classic to casino games, and the slot machine, you know, is is just a super casual tap mechanic mm. that just moves you forward, um, and it, it triggers some similar things as, as casino games, but has none of the trappings, um, and I think this is the the kind of the great achievement. That's why I have high hopes for them because they did something which other companies don't do, and I think the the comparison to King really comes up here where. Mm. King had Candy Crush and Candy Crush made all their money, um, but they couldn't get themselves to get out more than more Candy Crush because they were too timid. Um, and, and having pitched casual non-casino slots games um, before, <laughs> I can tell you that um, no one really wanted to do that. Oh, casino, no, we're touching it with a 10-foot pole because yeah. it had all these um, connotations. But they did it. And people have tried before and, and other people have pitched similar things before CoinMaster, uh, but they did it. And this is why I have high hopes, because clearly whatever else they're doing, they don't have this timidness that I think ruins a lot of the big uh, mobile games companies, where they're like so afraid to put anything out that isn't the next number one hit, but they're actually happy to kind of go like, let's break some rules. Um, let's actually be bold about putting new designs out. Um, so I'm actually quite looking forward to what they put out next, because I, I think they might actually be willing to do something new rather than just trying to rehash old successes. Is 300 million, a, feels like a big raise to me. I mean, it, it's really interesting, these one-game companies, and I guess you would say King was that at one point, which sold to Activision for 5 billion, so I suppose 4, 5, 6. So I guess there's a precedent for one big-game company that having that value, I guess that adds up. I guess in the press release there was some talk of using it for M&A, that $300 million, because if it was just on all the internal production, then that's... Uh, that's a lot of, I mean, even with 400 people, that's a lot of money to raise. I'm thinking about it with my production hat, but maybe that's it. Maybe it's uh, more about marketing and M&A, right? J-Lo is expensive. Though. Yeah, J-Lo is expensive. And not only J-Lo. <laughs> but look, yeah, the CEO mentioned their strength is uh, in their people and uh, their team. And I think uh, it makes sense to just, uh, they want to bring more talented people in. Well, with uh, acquisitions, and they already acquired Melsoft with the Family Island game last year, which was an amazing acquisition. I mean, in December when they acquired them, the the Family Island game was making around seven million revenue a month, and now since then they are growing month over month, and now being a, around like fourteen million a month, which I don't believe is a coincidence. So uh, definitely a good uh, partnership and acquisition for them. So if they continue with these type of acquisitions, then again, what's going to stop them? <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of app loving that, that when on an acquisition, maybe they're still acquiring, I've lost track, but you know, really were able to buy games that were good and make them yeah. great in terms of revenue. I mean, Matchington and the like really benefited from them being involved. I don't know exactly what they were doing, but um, maybe CoinMask can do the same thing here, Moon Active, I should say. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh I've never played a social casino game, so uh, I might check it out if it's so good. Uh, let's see how much I spend, what my LTV is. And I understand that yeah. word, by the way. Very proud. Um, <laughs> yeah. So next, uh, yeah, we have our bonus segment. So bold predictions about Ubisoft that we talked about in our second part. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go like in the, the order on my screen. So David, you can go first. 
Well, <laughs> he's always David, by the way. Oh, it's always you. I mean, it's I, always me. David. Yeah, yeah, it's always David. Okay. <laughs> and a bold prediction about Ubisoft. That's a quite a narrow uh, arena for me to create a bold prediction. I think uh, I think we're going to see Vivendi, who you know they had a lot. They had a big standoff period with Vivendi. Do you, do you remember that where they bought a lot of Ubisoft and they didn't get on with them? And in the end, they agreed that they would never touch them for five years again. And Vivendi would not buy any more Ubisoft stock. So I think what's going to happen, they can see the Ubisoft are going into NFTs and blockchain and Vivendi come back and take a 30% share again. Nice. And this is still within the five years? Do you know, I don't know when they said that they'd stop doing that. It feels like about five years ago, but I'd have to look it up. So okay. maybe they come back again. I don't know. It's very hard to have a bold prediction about uh, Ubisoft. Yeah, all right. But let's see what Matei and Florian say. Let's hear it. That's fair. Florian. I see kind of Ubisoft as a bit of a company that's kind of like fallen behind creatively and, and kind of like in terms of market importance. So uh, my, my bold prediction would probably all rather be a downwards one or like an uh, that they're going to get acquired rather than that they're going to come out all guns blazing. But then again, you never know. Um, I obviously at the moment look at this through the lens of a designer and a consumer, not so much as a, as a business uh, guy. So someone's going to buy them very soon. Okay, completely. So the the NFT thing was a hail mary, um, not very successful, and uh, Th that's how it feels to me anyway. But again, you know, uh, with games, you never know. It's so hit driven. You like, you might well eat your words. So um, yeah, interesting. All right, Matei. Let's see. Well, they said the quartz is the first stepping stone towards the metaverse. So hmm, with this in mind, let's see. I think they will be able to pull this metaverse off by. Well, given the fact it's Ubisoft 20, 2030, <laughs> nine years, the metaverse, it, it's, uh, it's going to be created by Ubisoft or their version. There you yeah. go. Yeah, you know, Ubisoft won't be sitting on the sidelines and um, they'll be right into the metaverse. That's exactly the sort of thing that they like uh, uh, getting involved with. So there's certainly maybe what they're doing here is some sort of stepping stone to the metaverse, as Matei said. So maybe they'll surprise us with some big metaverse announcement in the next yeah. 12 months. Six months. <laughs> I'm curious when we'll see the next uh, big publisher follow, because uh, it feels like this could be more than six months, and, and feels like Ubisoft was fast, but uh, I don't know how how, how these. Yeah, work. I mean, and which of the big publishers has been supportive of NFTs? I know EA has. Did Activision? Who else? Yeah, Zynga as well. Zynga, yeah. They had to, man. Right. Yeah, they hired the the new new guy. Yeah. Let's see. Cool. All right, that was it. Thanks, David, Florian, Matei. I really enjoyed our conversation um, about everything, blockchain, NFTs, and then also Moonshot. Um, yeah. You mean Moon Active again? <laughs> keep, keep making that mistake. Yeah, man. Moon Active. <laughs> this, that was this, it. This is one. <laughs> uh, you see how familiar I am with the mobile gaming space. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for being on. Listener, thank you so much for listening. Thank Hope you. you enjoyed the show. If you did, Feel free to leave us a rating, share with your friends. Always uh, welcome in our Discord to join the conversation. And uh, with that, the Metacast is out and we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers.